Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawarong and the Wadawarong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. A one and a two and a one, two, three. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Chickstery, the podcast that is rewriting the history books to include the women that were written out of them. My name is Annie and over there is Phoebe. Hello, Phoebe. Hello, hello. hello. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode where we'll tell you a story about a chick in history. Um, And there's actually a term for this, which I'm going to talk about in my story today, but it's called the Matilda Effect. I'll go into it in my story, but if we did want to find another name for the podcast, we could call it the Matilda Effect, which I thought was quite cool. But um, I do like Chick's Tree as well. Yeah, I do too. Mm. It's pretty good, you know. Mm. I like that, you know, you guys as our listeners are known as Chickstorians. Exactly. It just flows. It does. It works. It really does. Mm. How have you been? I've been great. Just, you know, digging away. Digging away. Digging away. At those ancestral records. Mm, that's right. It's been a lot of, um, well, you know, part and parcel of my job. It's a lot of death. Well, I, I would imagine if you are digging back sort of at least more than 100 years, you're mm. probably going to come across quite a bit of death. Yes. If you're dealing with an yes. immortal vampire. Well, I know I haven't found one of those yet, but I was um, doing something for a client before and I'm not sure if you've ever heard of the term baby farming. Oh, I kind of have, but I don't really know. It's pretty awful, so trigger warning for anyone Mm. listening. Um, It was a practice that was Australia-wide, possibly worldwide, I couldn't say, um, during the mostly in the late 19th, early 20th century where, you know, women who might have been unwed or couldn't um, take on another child, mouth to feed, whatever whatever may have been the circumstances, would have a baby, they would give the baby to a nurse or someone they believed was um, of good standing who said, you know, I'll take on your baby, you mm. just pay me X amount a week that would cover the costs. And not all the time but sometimes those women that took the babies either took the money and didn't care for the children oh, or, yeah. you know, they became so malnourished and so unwell that they died in their care. So there was this whole, you know, you've got a mother that might be you know, a single mother or unwed. Mm. She's now lost a baby. She's up against her in the courts, in the court system because, yeah. you know, there'd be an inquest into the baby and then yes. there'd be this other woman who's claiming, oh, I've got no clue what you're talking about. I run a, I run a wonderful establishment. Oh, um, so there were a number of baby farms where, you know, little, you know, dead babies were found in backyards and all sorts of things. So it's really awful. Oh, this has reminded me of, think of an episode we've we've done ages ago. It might have been an Evie Evie episode 
and it was it, this was uncovered lots of baby graves mm. something that you know i could there are a number of baby farmers it's not a nice part of history but i yeah. think it's a part of history that people yes um should be aware of and i did a lot of work you know my later uni days into uh female abortionists as uh-huh. well and quite often those crossover. Right. So okay. um you know it's something that maybe we'll do a a chick or a time in history. We could do a time in history as yeah. well to talk about that. It's not nice, but I think it's worth knowing about. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And how have you been? What have I been up to? <laughs> oh, I'm obsessed with a new show called The Great Pottery Throwdown. Tell me more. Tell me more. <laughs> this sounds amazing. Well, you know I've been doing a bit of pottery. I've been <laughs> mm. dabbling in a little bit of pottery now that mm-hmm. I'm job free. Yes. And uh, it is just one of the best shows I've seen in a really long time. It is basically like the, you know, great British Bake Off or, mm-hmm. you know, the Lego show. They have to make something within the time frame of an episode. So mm-hmm. you kind of get the start and the finish and then in between they get to do these challenges. But it's basically um, there's a guy, Potter, who's like really well-known, a woman a sculptor who um, is also one of the judges and then there's the host. But the, the, the male uh, judge cries at the most like <laughs> insignificant times within the show and the first time he did it, he kind of took because I went back to season one. I think there's six seasons, and you can watch it all now on binge. And I have been binging it, I have to say. <laughs> but yeah, and the first time he did it, it like all the hosts and the other judge and even the contestants just kind of stood there and they're like, "Is he? Is he crying? Like about the weight of an object? Like what is going on?" <laughs> and so every episode, he will just cry at the just the. The, the most weirdest things that you think, really? Is that, is that something you would cry about? But he gets so passionate about pottery and potting and turning and on the wheel and throwing. And uh, it's a wonderful, lighthearted, beautiful piece of entertainment. So I wholesome. highly, it's wholesome. I highly recommend. And it's giving me lots of ideas because I did a pottery course and then I, as part of that, I can now hire the studio and go in and do it on my own, which I did do the other day. And I'm just trying to make the things that they make on the show to not much success. Excellent. But it's the process. Have you got a historical fact for us today? I mean, you kind of already have done one, but give us well, another one. I have, but also this is sort of on the in the same vein. So apologies for all the darkness okay. today. You, you bring the dark. I oh, like it. Woo. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about causes of death. A common cause of death on inquests, particularly in the mid-19th century in Victoria, but it would have been, I'd imagine, worldwide as well, uh, was visitation of God. So that generally meant that the coroner had deemed the death inexplicable and it was thought that, you know, old mate upstairs had decided Mm -hmm. it was time for that person to go. It would also be what we would probably know nowadays as natural causes of death, Uh but it Mm -hmm. could be something, let's say, like what we know now as SIDS or cot death. So Uh it was inexplicable. They didn't know what happened. There wasn't anything outwardly evident or, you know, if they did a post-mortem they couldn't they couldn't find out what it was. 
I also want to tell you a few other death facts. Please this do. Is really, while you're on it, well, while you're there. on the subject. I know. Uh, so the last death by hanging in Victoria, and as it turned out in Australia, was in 1967 when Ronald Ryan was convicted of murder for shooting and killing a police officer during an escape from Pentridge Prison. So that was not that long ago. He was the last person to be hanged. However, Victoria didn't actually abolish the death penalty until 1975. Really? Mm, yeah. And then something I've just learned today. So this is what was yeah. <laughs> this is what yeah. was the catalyst today. Um, in 1977 in France, the last execution by guillotine was performed. Oh my lord! I was two mm. years old. Mm. Yeah. That so they seems they'd... really. Recent. Recent, mm. hasn't it? I mean, yeah. to me, the 70s is still 30 years ago. So, Well, I wasn't born in the 70s, but still, to me, it's 30 years ago too. <laughs> I forget. I feel like I got to like the year 2000 and then I just stopped adding on the years mm, after probably that. Probably best. Just, that's how yeah. I've always thought of yeah. like, oh, the 70s, oh, that's 30 years ago. Mm, but yeah, really. So there you go. That's really a little happy, happy historical oh. fact for today. Okay, before we begin today, we have to establish some definitions because today we're going to be talking about the origin of sex chromosomes. Okay. Mm. Science. Science. Mm -hmm. We're doing science. So, But we need to be clear that we're not referring to gender and although these terms are often used interchangeably, this is no longer true in science. So I thought this would be handy just because, you know, look, you know, at the moment in particular there's lots of talk around gender and, you know, non-binary and all of that, all of that sort of stuff. So I thought it would be good just to sort of for context we're going to take Yale University's definitions of how they define sex when related to human subjects, sex and gender. So the term sex should be used as a classification generally as male or female according to the reproductive organs and functions that derive from the chromosomal complement generally XX for female and XY for male. The term gender should be used to refer to a person's self-representation as male or female or how that person is responded to by social institutions on the basis of the individual's gender presentation. It is also important to note while an individual's internal sense of gender can be female or male, some people identify as non-binary, neither female nor male. Other individuals can identify as a gender that is the same as which is cisgender, or different from, which is transgender, the one assigned at birth. These terms are separate from an individual's sexual orientation, which describes a person's emotional, romantic, and or physical attachments, such as straight, lesbian, gay, asexual, bisexual, or more. Uh, in science, as our understanding grows, so must the precision of our language in communicating what we know. So I just thought that was a really nice context to kind of say today we're talking about sex so we're talking about the reproductive organs and the functions mm -hmm. that derive from the chromosomal complement okay okay so that's already that's already a science lesson take it away Today, I'm going to tell you about the story of Nettie Stevens. It's another Nettie. Now I did Nettie mm. Honeyball a little while ago. Mm. A lot of people call me Nettie, 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 Nettie as a nickname. So I don't know. I just keep getting attracted to these <laughs> Netties. So, yes. Yeah, so today is the story of Nettie Stevens, an American geneticist who discovered the sex chromosomes that would later go on to be referred to as the X and Y chromosomes. 
Now, just for a bit of fun, I thought we'd take a little look at what people thought about how sex was determined back in history before Nettie came along. So in the textbook Development Biology, it notes that Aristotle believed a child's sex was determined by the body temperature of the father during sex. So he would counsel elderly men to conceive in the summer if they wished to have a boy. (laughs) I know. Mm. Uh, according to the Evolution of Sex Determination, a book by biologists Leo W. Buchboom and Nicholas Perrin, the 18th century French anatomist Michel Procoupe Cotal, I hope I'm saying that right, the author of The Art of Having Boys, believed that testicles and ovaries were either male or female. He suggested the best way to control a child's sex would be to remove the testes or ovary connected with the unwanted sex. Oh. Though a less dramatic means for ladies would be to lie on the correct side and let gravity do the rest. (laughs) Oh, I love it. In 19th century Europe, it was widely believed that nutrition was the key to sex determinant. Poor nutrition led to males, good nutrition to females. So eat your greens if you want more gals. So thanks to Nettie Stevens, we know now that all of this is complete bollocks. Hogwash. Hogwash, I tell you. (laughs) Nettie Marie Stevens was born in 1861 in Cavendish, Vermont, to Julia Adams and Ephraim Stevens, and she had one sister called Emma. Her mother sadly died when she was just two years old and her father remarried uh, and the family moved to Westford, Massachusetts. Throughout her childhood, Nettie's father worked as a carpenter, which would provide enough money for her and her sister to ensure a solid education. Uh, Nettie was a super bright student, often topping her class, and she and her sister were two of only three women to graduate between 1872 and 1883 from the Westford Academy, one of the oldest public schools in the United States. After graduating in 1880, Nettie moved to New Hampshire to teach high school zoology, physiology, mathematics, English and Latin. After three years teaching, she returned to Vermont to continue her studies at the Westfield State University, where she completed the four-year course in just two years and graduated with the highest scores in her class. So we're kind of getting a bit of a picture that she's a bit of a smarty pants. She's real smart. She's real smart. At the relatively late age of 35, she had saved up enough money to enroll in a small startup university in California, otherwise known as Stanford where she thrived, earning her Bachelor in Biology in 1899 and her Master's in Biology in 1900. After graduating, she became increasingly focused on histology. Now, histology is the branch of biology that studies the microscopic anatomy of biological tissues. There is going to be a lot of science-y words Mm. in this episode, so I'm just warning you. Don't at me. I might be saying them wrong. Life goes on. (laughs) Deal with it. After studying physiology and histology at Stanford, she enrolls in the Bryn Mawr College to pursue her PhD in cytology. Cytology is a branch of biology that studies the structure, function and behaviour of cells. 
Here she focuses her doctoral studies on topics such as regeneration in primitive multicellular organisms, the structure of single-celled organisms, the development of sperm and eggs, germ cells, which are any cell that gives rise to the gametes of an organism that reproduces sexually, and cell division in sea urchins and worms. Fascinating. (laughs) Wow. That's a lot of science. I can't even remember the first 20 elements. I know. I will be shaking her head. I know. During her graduate studies at Bryn Mawr, she is named a President's European Fellow and spends a year at the Zoological Station in Naples, Italy, uh, between 1901 and 1902, where she worked with marine organisms and at the Zoological Institute of the University of Würzburg, Germany. Nettie received her PhD from Bryn Mawr in 1903, which was very rare for a woman of her time. That's very rare to have mm. a, a PhD, um, you know, in the early, early 20s. Yeah. And she remained at the college as a research fellow in biology where she focused her studies on the problem of sex determinism. In 1904, she's awarded a research assistantship at the Carnegie Institute of Washington and it is here where she applies for funding for research on sex determination. Nettie is successful in receiving a grant, so she begins her career looking at germ cells of aphids to examine possible differences in the chromosome sets between the two sexes. In the early 1900s, the idea that chromosomes contain hereditary information was still a brand new theory, and the scientific community was trying to work out the mechanisms of how all traits, including sex, were passed between generations. Nettie was curious to know how and if sex was passed on through genetic inheritance. Using observations of insect chromosomes, Nettie discovered that in some species, chromosomes are different between the sexes, and when chromosome segregation occurs in sperm formation, this difference leads to outcomes of female versus male progeny. Her discovery was the first time that observable differences of chromosomes could be linked to an observable difference in physical attributes, i.e. whether an individual's sex is male or female. Nettie published this work in 1905 and continued on with her experiments using a range of insects. She identified the small chromosome, which went on to be known as the Y chromosome, in mealworms. This discovery was something that had eluded humanity for millennia. We should point out here that a guy by the name of Herman Henking had studied firebug chromosomes earlier and he had discovered the chromosome now called X, but he didn't find the small chromosome that we now call Y. Nettie deduced that the chromosomal basis of sex depended on the smaller Y chromosome carried by the male. An egg fertilized by a sperm that carries the small chromosome becomes a male, while an egg fertilized by a sperm with the larger chromosome becomes a female. See, we're even the larger chromosome. Yeah. Chromosome. How many times can I say chromosome in this episode? <laughs> Word count. <laughs> right? She observed that the female mealworm's cells had 20 large chromosomes and the male had 20 as well, but the 20th was notably smaller than the other 19. This seems to be a clear case of sex determination, she wrote in her notes. Nettie correctly concluded that this difference could be traced back to differences in the mealworm sperm. 
The sperm had either the small version of the 20th chromosome or the large one. The spermatozoa, which contain the small chromosome, determine the male sex, she wrote, while those that contain 10 chromosomes of equal size determine the female sex. Studying egg tissue and the fertilization process in aphids, mealworms, beetles, and flies, she was able to see that there were chromosomes that existed in small and large pairs, now known as the XY chromosome pairs. And she also saw chromosomes that were unpaired. They were XO, and that's now known as Turner syndrome. Oh, okay. Hmm. Nettie was able to also debunk a previous idea from Clarence Irwing McClung that the X chromosome determines sex. This idea was wrong and Nettie concluded that sex determination is in fact due to the presence or absence of the small Y chromosome. Now, this is where the story takes a turn. Now, it will come as no surprise to our listeners that her colleague and mentor, a guy by the name of E.B. Wilson, who was a legendary biologist in his own right, is more com- commonly cited as the discoverer of sex chromosomes. This dude, who was working on the same question as Nettie, had published a similar paper around the same time. His discoveries were on a species where the male actually has one less chromosome than the female, which is less common in nature. He only perf- he only performed cytological examination on the testes without examining the female eggs. He stated that the eggs were too fatty for his staining procedures. So he didn't even bothered at the like, he didn't even look at the female half of it. He says, ah, oh, we'll just look at the male oh, ones. That'll that'll be enough. Why not? Hell. <laughs> Further to this, he also still believed environmental factors played a role in determining sex. Fruit and veg. Fruit and veg, what side do you lie on? If it's mm. hot, is it cold? No. <laughs> do you play sport? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. After reading Nettie's findings, he reissued his paper with a footnote crediting Nettie. And though time proved Nettie to be the first to discover the smaller Y chromosome in relation to sex determination, it's Wilson who got the credit. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Just- It is generally stated that E.B. Wilson obtained the same results as Nettie Stevens at the same time, historian Stephen Brush explains in The History of Science Society. But Wilson probably did not arrive at his conclusion on sex determination until after he had seen Stevens' results. Because of Wilson's more substantial contributions in other areas, he tends to be given most of the credit for his discovery. Someone's copying someone's homework. That's what's happening here. (laughs) True. Um, Now, this is the Matilda effect. So the Smithsonian Magazine describes this as a classic case of the Matilda effect, a term named after the abolitionist Matilda Gage. The effect is the phenomenon that women's accomplishments tend to be co-opted outright stolen or overshadowed by those of male peers. There you go. I assumed when you were saying Matilda effect, I was like, well, that makes sense. They're saying the Matilda effect now with the Matilda's soccer team 
all these women <gasps> jumping on board. Oh, They're gro- I like in- that too. Yeah. There you go. However, yeah, no, it's named after um, it's ye oldie times, which is great because that's that's completely what we do. This whole podcast is about mm. the Matilda effect. Yeah, sadly. <laughs> Um, additionally, Thomas Hunt Morgan has also been credited with the discovery of sex chromosomes, although at the time of these cytological discoveries, he argued against both Wilson and Nettie's interpretations. Morgan's recognition came in part from his work on sex linkage of the white mutant gene of fruit flies and was especially heightened by his Nobel Prize Award in 1933. <laughs> In his textbook, The Mechanism of Genetics, published in 1915, Morgan did not credit either Nettie or Wilson with the discovery of sex chromosomes. He described sex linkage of the white gene in the chapter immediately before the one in which he described Nettie's results without mentioning her name implying that his own laboratory's sex linkage analysis was the basis on which one should understand sex determination. This is also not to say that he had no idea who Nettie was. He actually had taught her. (gasps) And in an earlier letter of recommendation, he wrote, of the graduate students that I have had during the last 12 years, I have had no one that was as capable and independent in research as Miss Stevens. So let me steal your work. Nettie was not recognised after her discovery and to throw salt on the wounds, both men, Morgan and Wilson, were invited to speak at a conference to present their theories on sex determination in 1906, but Nettie was not even invited to speak. Dick swinging contest. Classic. Mm. At the age of uh, just 50, And only nine years after completing her PhD, Nettie sadly died of breast cancer on May the 4th, 1912 in Baltimore, Maryland. Although her career span was short, she published a record-breaking 40 papers. I know. Nettie Stevens was never married and had no children. She was buried in the Westford, Massachusetts Cemetery alongside the graves of her father and her sister. In 1994, Nettie Stevens was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame and to celebrate her 155th birthday on July 7, 2016, Google created a doodle showing Stevens peering through a microscope at XY chromosomes. Yay, Google. Yay, Google. It's only taken how many years, but, you know. 105. (laughs) Well, 100 probably because she does. 105. There you go. Yeah. On May 5, 2017, Westfield State University honoured Stevens through the naming ceremony of the Dr. Nettie Maria Stevens Science and Innovation Centre. The centre is where the university's STEM-related degree programs in nursing and allied health, chemical and physical sciences, biology, environmental science, and the then soon-to-be-launched master's degree program in physician assistant studies are all based. Nettie Stevens' sex chromosome discovery in 1905 was the culmination of more than 2,000 years of speculation and experiment on how an animal, plant or human becomes male or female. At the same time, it provided an important confirmation for the recently revived Mendelian genetics that was to become a central part of modern biology. And that is the story of Nettie Stevens, 
who did discover the sex chromosomes. Well done, Nettie. Well done, Nettie. That's amazing. In such a short life too. Such a short life. And to have... To have saved up enough money to put herself through Stanford, even though it was a small startup university at the time, <laughs> at the age of 35, like that's really late to be studying and to still mm. be thinking that that's the path she wants she wanted to take. I mean, mm. she would have, I mean, she's 35, she would have been, um, she would have had to, I believe, turn down a lot of probably marriage proposals she had no children so she really went against that you know a societal kind of expectation of Mm. of what she should be doing Um, and all she wanted to do was study well done Nettie scientists amazing people it science is not my brain is not made for it but amazing just look at what they've done I mean over many 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 years but particularly over the last few years yeah yeah um they deserve all the credit and women in science women in science particularly so Mm. yeah and look I really like that we also uncovered the um, Matilda effect because we Mm. there's a name for it now so you'll probably be hearing it quite a lot in many more episodes to come yes you're welcome (laughs) uh so that's it for another week we did it Yay! Yay. Thanks for listening. As always, rate, review, subscribe, press all the things. um, And we will see you back here next week with another chick from history. 